0: Now hear God's holy word from 2 Samuel chapter 6, continuing our study in the book of 2 Samuel. Hear now God's holy word. Again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name Yahweh of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. So they set the ark of God on a new cart And brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. Then David and all the house of Israel played music before Yahweh and all kinds of instruments of firwood, on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on cistrums, and on cymbals. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we praise you for your word, and as we study another chapter in the life of your servant and King David, we ask you to conform us to your will. Help us to understand what you are communicating here and what you have shown us to be your pleasure. Father, guide us now so that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts might be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our nearest kinsman. Amen. Amen. Just about every family, just about every house has some heirloom, some knickknack, some treasure that may have been passed down to you or it may have been associated with some important event or some important vacation in your life, something you can't turn loose of that has incredibly uh, high s- uh, sentimental value to you but which to any outside observer might look like it's not worth anything at all. I'm sure that there's something you can think of right now, something sitting on a mantle or something, maybe even in a closet, that you can't, you just can't bear uh, the thought of actually throwing that away. You've, you have to hold on to that. And so, um, in the same way, imagine being an outsider to Israel and, and seeing how excited people were over this wooden box that was about four feet wide, was about two feet, I'm sorry, yeah, four feet long, about two feet wide, and about two feet deep. This was, of course, uh, what Israel knew as the Ark of the Covenant. It was covered with gold. The lid had a couple of angels facing each other. To the outsider, it might have looked just like another, another knick-knack, another piece of furniture. Maybe there's some sentimental value attached to it, but an outsider might not have known any of the context or any of the background and think, well, that's not really, it's not really that special. If you could get the gold off of it and melt it down, it might be worth something. But to the Israelite, this gilded piece of furniture was more than just a box. This Ark of the Covenant was a representation of the presence of Yahweh to his people. And it was much more than simply a sentimental value attached to it. There was a redemptive value. This, this box, this Ark of the Covenant that, that God directed Moses to build at Mount Sinai Uh, It's at various points referred to in the Bible as the chariot of God. The Ark of the Covenant, remember, led the army of the children of God through the wilderness. When the Levites set out carrying the Ark on poles on their shoulders, when they set out each day, Moses would say, Rise up, O Yahweh. Let your enemies be scattered and let those who hate you flee before you. So there's a real militant Uh, Component to the traveling and the movement of the ark, so that so that Moses says, "Let your enemies be scattered. Rise up, O Yahweh." And when the procession stopped and the ark rested, Moses said, "Return, O Yahweh, to the many thousands of Israel." The idea is there when the ark advances and when the ark stops, Yahweh and his army, Yahweh and his hosts advance and stop. Now this doesn't mean that the ark of the covenant was the image of Yahweh, but that it was a symbol. It was a representation of his presence. And so it was full of all sorts of important associations for Israel. It spoke to Yahweh's kingship over them. Later on, David is going to call the Ark of the Covenant God's footstool. Well, not everybody had chairs in the ancient world. Uh, you had cushions or maybe you had couches, but a chair was something really special and a king sat upon a chair. And still in some universities, a special appointment is called the chair, right? And that's, that's a really special uh, kind of, a, uh, of, of honor to be able to have a chair. Well, the king had a chair, the king had a throne and the king had a footstool at the base of his chair. And so kings sit on thrones and kings have footstools. And so if the ark is God's footstool, then, then Yahweh is king. So the ark speaks to the the militant nature, that God is a God of hosts, God is a God of armies, and it speaks to his kingship over everything. But the ark also spoke to the cleansing and redemption that God offered through the sacrificial system, the, the forgiveness of sins. On the annual day of atonement, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies, and he would sprinkle the blood of the sin offering on the lid of the ark. And the lid of the ark was also known as the mercy seat. So it constantly annually reminded Israel that we need a sacrifice to enter the presence of God. We only come before the presence of God by way of a blood sacrifice. And of course these bulls and goats are not perfect sacrifices. One day God is gonna provide for himself the perfect sacrifice by which we're gonna enter God's presence and receive forgiveness and nearness and communion and fellowship with God. So you sprinkled the blood on the top of of the ark. Now, in order for this to happen, in order for there to be a day of atonement, the ark had to be in the holy place. It had to be in the tabernacle, which means that this has never happened in David's lifetime. Year by year by year, Israel has been sinning and sinning and sinning and rebelling and following after idols and following their own way, and there has been no day of atonement the entire length of David's life up to this point in 2 Samuel, because... The, the tabernacle has been torn apart. The altar's over here, and the, and the Ark of the Covenant is over here, and, and we don't have the whole system put together because um, of the sin of Eli and his sons back at the beginning of 1 Samuel. It's not until Solomon puts everything back together that the Day of Atonement can really get started again. Uh, of course, the temple's going to be torn back, uh, apart back again in, in, uh, in the Babylonian conquest. It's not until Jesus that we have uh, the complete, full day of atonement. Jesus is the mercy seat. Jesus puts the temple back together again in himself and in, in the church. But, but under the old covenant, The ark is an essential element. It's an essential component to the sacrificial liturgy of Israel, pointing forward to Jesus and his sacrifice and his uh, his sacrifice making it possible for us to stand in God's presence. And so the ark points to the forgiveness of God and the grace of God. So not only does it point to the Lord's presence and his kingship, not only does it play a significant symbolic role in, in atonement and forgiveness, the Ark also emphasizes the revelation of God. What was inside the Ark? Well, we had the stone tablets on which were written the 10 words, the 10 law words, the 10 commandments. Those were in the Ark of the Covenant, which revealed God's will, God's pleasure for us. And inside the Ark also was Aaron's rod that budded. You remember Aaron had a rod and God made it to bloom a dead piece of wood, a dead stick. He made it to bloom and sprout uh, as a symbol of God's anointing of, of, of Aaron and the priesthood. What else was in there? Well, there was also a pot of manna, which was a revelation of God's special miraculous provision over his people through the wilderness. So the ark itself was a place where God met with his servants, his high priest. It was where Yahweh would speak and communicate his instruction for Israel through Moses and through his high priest. So the Ark has all kinds of associations with the word of Yahweh and the revelation of his will. So taking all of this into account, you see why the Ark of the Covenant is so integral and so important to the life of Israel under the Old Covenant. It's way more than a, than a, a knick-knack or a, or, a, or a wooden box. That's why there's such a big to-do when David determines to bring back the ark, and put it central in the life and worship of Israel. He brings it into Jerusalem. What David is doing, he's demonstrating that Yahweh's presence and his rule and his redemption and the revelation of his will can no longer remain on the back burner for Israel. Saul left it on the back burner. Saul didn't really pay much attention to the importance of these things. But David says, no, this must be center stage. This has to be the focus of the new kingdom. And so in 2 Samuel 6, which we began just a moment ago, we have the end of a story that began way back in 1 Samuel 4. This is the story of the exile and the return of the ark. In your bulletin, I titled it, you know, the return of the lost ark, being a little cheeky, playing off the movie title of uh, the the raiders of the lost ark this is a return but the the ark really hasn't been lost it has been exiled it's lost in the sense that it hasn't been central to israel's life and worship but the ark has had its own adventure through the pages of uh, the book of samuel and while david and and saul have been doing their things the ark has been uh, way over here so so remember quickly what happens to the ark in 1 Samuel 4. The ark is brought out by Israel on the field of battle against the Philistines. They bring it out, they trot it out as if it's a good luck charm. As as again, it's like some holy knick-knack. That's what they're treating it like. As if it's a talisman of God's God's power. But what happens on that day is that 30,000 men of Israel die. The Philistines capture the ark And then Eli, the high priest, falls off a stool when he hears the news and he breaks his neck because his sons were also killed in that battle. His wicked sons were killed. So the ark was exiled to Philistia and there God does battle with Dagon. God does battle with the Philistines all by himself. God doesn't need the armies of Israel to do battle against the idols. He does it himself. They, of course, put the ark in the temple of Dagon. Dagon falls over. They go back in, they put him back up. He falls over again and breaks his head and his hands off. You know, real powerful God that you have to pick up and set back on his, his, his base. Um, but then, then the uh, uh, Philistines are plagued with tumors and rats. And they, uh, the, God sends plagues on the Philistines like he did on Egypt. And so they're sick of this. They don't want anything to do with this. They put the ark on a cart and they send it back to Israel with two cows that are just driven by God's spirit back to Israel. So if we're we're following the story, the ark goes into Philistia. The house of Eli is torn down. The house of Eli is brought to an end. There, it spends time in the presence of the Philistines before it's brought back to Israel on a new cart driven by Israel. Cows pulled by cows, and there, when Israel gets it back, some some men of Israel say, Hey, look it 's the ark we don 't get to see this every day. This is in the holy of holies why don 't we just take a peek inside and see what 's in there and see if you know the stories we heard are true? Well, they behave foolishly, they look inside, and God kills all of them, and so now we 're very afraid of what God is going to do with this. So we give it to a man named Abinadab and his sons, and they take care of it. They're the caretakers of the ark. And so by the time that David becomes king, it's been in the house of Abinadab for more than 40 years. Now we see that it's time to bring it back. So we're gonna walk the story backwards. You see, Uh, the house of Eli, I'm trying to do this on a timeline here for you. The house of Eli was taken apart. It went into Philistia. It came back on an ark. It went to Abinadab's house. Now we're going to walk it backwards. We're going to bring it back out on a cart foolishly. As men behaved around the ark foolishly over here, we're going to see some foolishness again with regards to how the ark is transported and treated. And then it's going to go back into the safekeeping of a Philistine. Before it's brought back to Jerusalem and reestablished, and then we get that note at the very end of, of this chapter that the house of Saul has been taken apart. So we begin with the breakdown of the house of Eli, and we're going to end with that breakdown of the house of Saul. There's a symmetry to this story, and each, each chapter of the story is a bookend to one at the, at the other side. Well, this chapter begins, this story begins with a clear reference to the days of Eli and the loss of the ark. David calls 30,000 chosen men to go and get the ark and bring it back to Jerusalem. One practical reason for this is that they want to be sure to protect it. They're going to be heading very close to Philistine territory. It would be a disaster if it were to be lost again, if a new generation of Philistines say, hey, let's try this again and have it captured. But the other reason for this number, the other reason for taking 30,000 men is that it was 30,000 men who were killed when the Ark was first captured back in Aphek. Well, 30,000 fell before, now 30,000 are going to go regain the ark and bring it home because God has restored Israel, God has forgiven Israel, he's replaced what he's taken away. So let's send 30,000 men to go get it and bring it back, and they bring it back with a great cloud of instrumental music, like a big victory parade celebrating Israel's deliverance from the Philistines that we've just seen, that battle against the Philistines, decisive battle that we saw at the end of chapter 5. All of this is great. All of this is wonderful. This is glorious. This is beautiful. But they don't carry it like God commanded them to. They put it on a new cart. we're not going to put it on any old cart, right? It's going to be a new cart. Well, that's exactly what the Philistines do. And the Philistines in their twisted way, remember, they thought, you know what we need to do? We need to make little rats uh, out of gold and golden tumors. I mean, what in the world does a golden tumor look like? I don't even know if I want to imagine that. But they, they make golden rats and golden tumors in their twisted way. They think to appease Yahweh, let's put it on a new cart and let's send it back with offerings. Let's send it back with Uh, gold items that we've made. Well, God doesn't expect the Philistines to know how to transport the ark because he hasn't told the Philistines what he wants them to do with it. But he did tell his people what to do with it. You see, when they moved from place to place in the wilderness, Aaron and his sons were to go inside the tabernacle and cover up The Ark of the Covenant. They were supposed to cover it with 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 various coverings, and then insert poles through the rings on the side so that it could be carried on the shoulders of the Levites. But no one was supposed to look at it. No one was supposed to touch it. No one was supposed to fool around with it. This, this, why? Why is this? Well, we're reinforcing the message that God gave to Adam and Eve when He sent them out of the Garden of Eden. He said, "You know what? You've you've disobeyed me after the fall." you know, you've really destroyed everything. You've brought death upon yourselves and upon your children. And so we don't have close communion anymore. If you were to step inside the circle of my holiness, you would be consumed. You would be a burnt cinder. You'd be a a burnt chicken nugget if you come close to me. So I'm going to consume you with the holy fire of my righteousness. So you can't come back in here to the sanctuary. So I'm going to put uh, angels with flaming swords at the entrance. That's the only way you can come back in is through fire and the sword. Uh, and of course, there's a reference there in relevance to the sacrifice. But, but so you, you can't come back into the garden. You can't just stroll into God's presence in the Old Covenant. And you don't get full access until the death of the perfect sacrifice, the perfect high priest, Jesus. So under the Old Covenant, before Jesus. God is keeping man at arm's length from his holiness because if you come in, you'll die if you get that close. So so if the ark is where we meet with God, you have to be specially called and you have to be specially commissioned as a priest, as a representative of Israel to do this work on behalf of Israel. And you only get one high priest and only he gets to come before the ark. It's because God is holy and because we have sinned that until there's the perfect sacrifice, we don't come back into his presence. So you, you don't play around with the ark. You don't put it on a wagon. You don't put it in the back of a U-Haul. You don't, you don't throw it on the tailgate of a truck. You carry it on your shoulders. Why do you carry it on your shoulders on poles? Well, I'm sure you've seen old movies where uh, everybody's riding horses, but the king is on a chair or the, or the queen is on a chair, and or the pharaoh, and everybody's carrying him on their shoulders, because that's what you do with kings. You carry them on your shoulders. They ride on the praises of their people. They're high and lifted up over their people. Well, that's what you're supposed to do with the ark, because this is the presence of God, and he's our king, so we carry him up here. We don't treat him like luggage. We don't put him on a cart. So let's pick up. This is what they do. It's all great, except for the fact <laughs> we're carrying on a cart. Verse 6. Now, when they came to Nashon's threshing floor, Uzzah, this is the son of Abinadab, who grew up in the house where the ark was kept, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of Yahweh was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark of God. And David became angry because of of, of Yahweh's outbreak against Uzzah. And he called the name of the place Perez Uzza to this day. David was afraid of Yahweh that day. And he said, how can the Ark of Yahweh come to me? So David would not move the Ark of Yahweh with him into the city of David. But David took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The Ark of Yahweh remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And Yahweh blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. So even while they acknowledged that this is the representation of the presence of Yahweh. Somehow they think it's okay to carry it around however they want to and transport it in whatever way is convenient. Now, Uzzah and Ahio, these two men, they're the sons of Abinadab who was the caretaker of the ark all these years. And they're the ones who put it on the ark. And then if that wasn't a bad enough idea, Uzzah touches the ark. Now, you could think maybe this was innocent enough in one sense. You know, you're on the ark, you're carrying it, the, the ox stumbles. You're going to reach out and steady it so it doesn't fall off and break or so that it doesn't fall in the mud or get damaged or, or whatever. Like the, uh, like the reflex that, you know, before we had seatbelts, mamas used to do this, right? Every time you put on the brakes, you do this. Am I the only one? We had a Pontiac Bonneville with vinyl seats, big bench seat, we didn't use seat belts. Who uses seatbelts? Who does that? And my dad would armor all the seats so that whenever you hit the brakes, you're like, whoa, and you're into the windshield. So my mom, every time she hit the brakes, it was like this. That was the seatbelt. And uh, that was God's protection for me going through the windshield. Every time was that. Well, that's what you do. You the, 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 cart, the cart jostles. The cart stumbles. And, and Uzzah, he reaches out to hold on to the ark so it doesn't fall off. So imagine the scene here. Everyone's having a good time. Everyone's singing. It's 30,000 men. There's a big band playing, playing instruments. There's noise and laughter. And no one notices at first that the wagon bounces and the load shifts, and this man reaches out to steady it. It takes a while for everyone to notice what happened. A slow realization. The dancing stopped. The music stopped. And now everyone is standing around looking at Uzzah, and he's laying there on the ground dying. And everybody's like, whoa, 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 whoa. What, what happened? What happened? That put a stop to the party right there. We read that the Lord's anger was aroused against Uzzah and that God struck him there for his error. And he died right there by the ark of the Lord. While the reaching out to steady the ark might have been a reflex. It, it might have been just extremely innocent in the moment. They were setting themselves up for error and for failure way before this even began. You see, the majority of accidents that happen to us are the result of very poor planning and a lack of thoughtfulness. We stumble into things and we do dumb things because we haven't thought things through, because we haven't paid attention and we haven't planned appropriately. David decreed how the ark was to be transported. And so David was in part responsible for Uzzah's death. But some blame also has to be assigned to the two brothers. Their family had been in charge of the ark for all these years, and they were never allowed to touch it before this. You know how we know that? Because they're still alive. That's how we know that they never touched it. They'd been in charge of the ark. So um, they, they should have known. God has been very clear about what he requires. He tells us in numbers how to transport the ark. So rather than being offended at God for being so severe or ask, you know, why didn't God cut him some slack? I mean, it was just a little mistake, right? It's just a little thing. We have to remember when the Lord gives us specific commands, he does so for a reason. So we can't goof around with holy things. The rules were don't touch it, don't look into it, and don't transport it on a cart. They all knew this. These things were holy. And if they were exposed to God's holiness at this level, they would die. And the Lord didn't want them to die. So his love and kindness pours out in his warnings to not mess around with it. Well, David gets mad at the Lord here. And he calls this place outbreak against Uzzah. That's the name. That's the same word he used earlier when God uh, broke out against the Philistines. And so God is treating um, his people like the pagans because they're behaving like the pagans. They're not treating him uh, with the respect that he deserves, and so the Lord breaks out in judgment against them. Well, because this first attempt to bring the ark back was such a failure, David puts the ark in the house of Obed-edom. Obed-edom means servant of Edom, and he was a Gittite. Who are Gittites? Well, Gittites are from Gath. Do you know anybody else from Gath? Well, Goliath was from Gath, right? Well, David made big friends with um, the uh, the Philistines. He hung out with Achish. He had um, 600 Gittites in his army. So David had made certain associations when he was running from Saul. He'd made connections with the uh, the men of Gath. And so now the Ark is in safekeeping uh, with this faithful Philistine, but this time it doesn't bring him plagues, it brings him blessing. The Lord is favoring a Gentile. Uh, David is provoked to jealousy by this, but at least it's in safekeeping because there's a... Um, There's a shroud of ignorance. God has told his people what to do and what not to do with the ark. But David says, well, we've got to back up and we make sure that we're doing this right. And while we figure this out, why don't we let a Gentile keep it? Because God is going to be more patient with a Gentile who hasn't had the revelation of of God's will to know what to do and what not to do. Now let's pick up in verse 12. Now it was told King David saying, Yahweh has blessed the house of obed and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went up and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. And so it was when those bearing the ark of Yahweh had gone six paces that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. And David danced before Yahweh with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of Yahweh with shouting and with the sound of a trumpet. What's different now? Now they are bearing the ark. They aren't putting it on a cart. They are carrying it, carrying it in the prescribed way on poles. And then after they take six steps, David says, okay, stop right here. It looks like we got the right way now. It looks like we're carrying it how God wants us to carry it. And David stops right there and offers sacrifices. In First Chronicles 15, when we get uh, this story retold to us, uh, there's this additional detail. The Levites carry the Ark of God upon their shoulders with poles, it says. And then we read that the Levites sacrificed seven bulls and seven rams because God helped them. That's what it says there. See, now sacrifice and atonement and forgiveness and God's holiness uh, are, are front and center for David in a way that Saul never cared to pursue or cared to think about. David is restoring this to Israel. We also read in great deal detail in 1 Chronicles, when we get the story again, that David had organized a Le- Levitical choir and an orchestra to perform before the ark. See, the ark is going to be set up in a tent in Jerusalem, but the altar is still off in Gibeon. The altar is in a different place. So sacrifices uh, normally happen in Gibeon, But there's a new kind of sacrifice that's going to happen over here in front of the ark. It's a sacrifice of praise. It's a sacrifice of song and music. David here is dressed like a priest. He's dressed in a linen ephod. So he's a king, but he says, I'm I'm just a priest to the true king. And he shows this because as the procession goes on, the Bible says, David danced with all his might. And the word dance there is a word something like whirl. I mean, it's it's a vigorous spinning and turning in in dance. One source I came across said that um, in some ancient processions, the king would process into the city with his army, but that he also had um, like what we would think of as court jesters or clowns or uh, women dancing, who were just overcome, just overwhelmed stupefied with the glory and the majesty of the king who was coming into the city. Fools and, and jesters that demonstrated how, how overwhelmed they were with uh, the majesty of the king so that they couldn't contain themselves. Well, if that's what's happening here, David is processing into the city now, not as the king, but playing the part of the fool, playing the part of the clown, the jester. What that means is that Yahweh is the real king and David is taking on this self-deprecating role. Well, it's not the first time David has played a fool, is it? The very first time he went to stay with the Philistines, he acted like a madman. He acted like a fool so that they would not worry about him, so that they would leave him alone. So for David to be able to do this, now, we've seen him do this twice, act like a fool. He must have been able to abandon his pride, to, to be really convincing at being goofy and silly and learn how to laugh at himself. He doesn't take himself too seriously to be able to do this. This dance that David does as the ark is coming into the city, this dance is an act of worship since it's done before the Lord. This isn't the only time we see dancing in the Bible but every time that it's, it's done as an act of worship, it's an extraordinary circumstance. So, so dancing isn't a regular institution in worship. There aren't any commands regarding this. There are no rules about it, but, but it does appear occasionally. So that Miriam leads the women with music and dancing and song after the crossing of the Red Sea. The Benjamites, remember, take wives who are dancing around the feast, at the, uh, the feast of the Lord at Shiloh before the tabernacle. So there's no institution of dance the way that there's instituted music, there's instituted choirs and orchestras in the Bible. So for us to think what is the role of dance in the life and worship of a Christian today, we have to to think about um, what what this means and and when it happens and how it it works in some uh, very loosely or vaguely or, Barely uh, orthodox churches, and I use those words generously. You know, you might have liturgical dance where, uh, while the homily going on, you might have some ballerina doing something. Is that is that what is edifying and glorifying to God? I, I think we I think we would need to think more about it than that. In one sense, all of liturgy is a dance. Learning the steps of liturgy is like learning the steps of a of a dance, and dancing like worship, is glorious and lovely when it's choreographed and not so much like a mosh pit where everybody's just doing their own thing and just banging into each other. Worship is glorious when it is choreographed, just like dancing is glorious when when there's some choreography going on. That's why when we worship, we, we raise our hands together in worship. That's why we say amen together. This is not time for personal expressions necessarily, but it's time for corporate expressions of worship and praise. But it would be appropriate for us to maybe give some thought about how much more dance-like our worship could be on special occasions. And, and maybe, maybe on Palm Sunday we process into the sanctuary together singing something, or maybe, maybe we learn how to clap during certain psalms. I mean, if the trees of the field clap their hands, maybe, maybe there's something to clamping, clapping or, or you know, stomping your feet in unison on psalms that call for clapping or, or extra uh, bodily singing and engagement maybe we get our kids lessons on all kinds of musical instruments and we have worship orchestras that lead us in a procession. When when the Genevan Psalms came out, the critics called them what? They called them Genevan jigs because they're all like dance-like music, right? They they said, "Oh, that's 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 that dance music." And they they owned it. And they said, "Yeah, this is this is lively. Uh, this is peppy." So, um, we uh, we, we we have work to do i'm sure in our generation our children's generation thinking through how do we how do we embody worship and we're not just these brains who sit and soak up information on the lord's day and that's not what worship is you know with plain white walls and you know stiff back pews and we just soak up information and we leave and our bodies are just these cases to carry around our brains god has god has made us incarnate he's given us tongues and and feet and taste buds and hands and. Uh, all of this, all, 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 everything, and, and, and we engage all of it in worship to God. But, but not everybody likes dancing. Not everybody likes dancing. Take uh, Michal, for example. Uh, verse 16. Now as the ark of Yahweh came into the city of David, Michal, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and whirling before Yahweh, and she despised him in her heart. So they brought the Ark of Yahweh and set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. Then David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before Yahweh. And when David had finished offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of Yahweh of hosts. Then he distributed among all the people, among the whole multitude of Israel, both the women and the men to everyone, a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a cake of raisins. So all the people departed everyone to his house. Well the first hint of trouble here is that Michal watches David out the window and she despises him in her heart. What he is enthusiastic about, what he loves, she despises. She thinks he's acting like a child or a moron acting anything but kingly. We'll get to their conversation in a minute. But David sets up a tent Everyone gets a loaf of bread. Uh, everybody gets a piece of meat and a cake of raisins. The old King James translation says everybody got a flagon of wine. That, that word cake of raisins is a strange word. Um, most modern translators think, think it's raisin cake. Either way, you have the fruit of the vine there, whether it's bread, I'm sorry, whether it's wine or, or raisins, but it's a reminder of the conquest. You're getting, you're getting bread and, and a form of wine. He's giving gifts to all the people. Good gifts. This is the start of a party. These are the staples of life. So like Jesus, David's victories are the people's victories. The spoils don't go to the king alone, but the king shares his bounty with all the people. But like I said, not everybody's happy. There's, there's no party too grand that you're not gonna have somebody in the corner pouting. There's, there's always gonna be somebody determined to be sour and hateful and mean. And that person in the story is Michal, his wife, verse twenty. Then David returned to bless his household, and Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, "How glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids of his servants, as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself." So David said to Michal, "It was before Yahweh who chose me instead of your father and all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of Yahweh over Israel." Therefore, I will play music before Yahweh, and I will be even more undignified than this, and will be humble in my own sight. But as for the maidservants of whom you have spoken, by them I will be held in honor. Therefore, Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Three times the author refers to her as the daughter of Saul. She is the voice of the old kingdom. Hers is the voice of the old age, the former regime. She's concerned with royal dignity, with proper decorum, with outward appearances. She's very concerned with respectability. That's a big deal for her. The king has a certain image to maintain, and he shouldn't be putting himself down on the level of the riffraff. She thinks the young maidens are his audience. She thinks he's doing this to get the attraction of the young women. But he says, my dancing was before Yahweh. Yahweh's my audience. And not only this, but he has a different perspective on dignity. He says, you know what? You think that's undignified? I'm going to become even more undignified than this. I'm, I'm, I'm not Israel's tyrant. I'm Israel's servant. For David, humility is dignity. And there's nothing to be ashamed of when humiliating yourself before the Lord. Now, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, Mikael's story is, is tragic. She was married to David but Saul took her back and gave her to another man and she lived with that man for 10 years until David came to the throne and then he insisted on having her back. She was ripped away. She was brought back to David. But her opinion of David is, is, is obviously uh, uh, terrible at this point. Her idea of David as a young woman, when, when she was a younger woman, well, he's this brave warrior who killed 200 Philistines just to have me. And she liked that idea far more than she liked the idea of this humble worshiping king. And so now she has this angry outburst, which really is going to put a chill on the relationship. She says, Saul would never do anything like this. My father would never, ever do anything like this. Well, Well, yeah, that's the problem. That was the problem with Saul, is that he wouldn't do anything like this. So David answers her directly and pointedly. And then we read, she has no more children till the day of her death. She doesn't give David the son that might unite the houses of David and Saul. And that effectively ends the house of Saul. Just like Eli's house was ended when the ark was stolen. Now, now Saul's house is ended when the ark is is restored. Well, there we have it. The ark is put back in the center of Israel's life. Orchestras and choirs are instituted here. Jerusalem becomes the center of worship for all of Israel. And things are in motion to put God's house back together. And in the midst of this, God reminds David in rather dramatic fashion, David, if you're going to be blessed, and if things are going to go well for you and for the kingdom, And if things are going to go well for the people you have been called to serve as king, you are going to have to obey my law. There is no excuse for not knowing what God required when it came to transporting the ark. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, I'm just going to jump over there real quick and read just a couple of things uh, very quickly. Um, God demands that the king have an intimate knowledge of his law. And this is what God says way back in Deuteronomy 17. Also it shall be when the king sits on the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priest, the Levites, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear Yahweh his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, and that he may prolong his days in the kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. God commanded the king to do this. I want you to get the copy of the law from the Levites, and I want you to sit down, and every day I want you to copy it word for word for word in your own handwriting, and then I want to keep it right next to you, and I want you to read it every day so you know what I've said. And so that you've written with your own hand, the king will not multiply wives, the king will not multiply gold, the king will not multiply horses, so that you know how I told my people how they're to worship, even how they're to carry the ark. You wrote that with your own pen. You see, it's not like God is playing gotcha on some secret hidden law that he hid somewhere in the back pages, in the footnotes, and and then... Nobody knows this existed, but God has so much fun saying, aha, I found one that you didn't know about and I, and I got you on that and I killed you. Oh, that was fun. That's not what God does. Life And prosperity and blessing are communicated to us through the words of Scripture in plain black and white writing and understanding, and that we have these blessings based on a complete understanding of what God has said and what God requires, which is why, people of God, on the Lord's Day, when I have time to stand before you, I open God's word And we read it verse by verse by verse. That's why we do this. That's why we study God's word chapter by chapter. See, if I didn't do that, I would be very tempted to maybe just pick out two or three pet subjects and just camp out on those and just do those over and over and over because I feel really comfortable talking about those things. I might be tempted to talk about my opinions or just do life coaching every Lord's Day, which, which is what so much preaching is in the church today. So much of what you hear is just, is just life coaching. Just here's what you need to do about this thing. And here's the five keys to this thing over here. And here's the, here's the six tips to do that. You know, Give you my opinions on the culture wars every Sunday or, or, or tips for financial success or, or here are the keys to a happy, healthy life. Well, what's the point of all that? Is that really going to conform you to God's will? If I just pour out opinions every Lord's Day? Is that, I, see, I don't really want to do that. That's a waste of your time. Why would we want to do that when we have the Bible? Why, why would we do that? See, that's why I insist on reading every word out loud to you. And over a number of years, we're going to cover every part of God's word. We're going to read it out loud and we're going to hear it. That's why we have lots of Bible in worship. Why the elder reads the Bible. Why we sing the Bible and pray the Bible and we say it back and forth to each other. So that the word of God is spoken out over our land so that we hear it and so that our children hear it, so that we're constantly submitting ourselves to God's word and that we acknowledge that what God says is the most important thing for us to hear in the whole entire world. If we're going to live lives that are pleasing to God, if we are going to be a blessing to God, if the world is going to be ordered by God's word above all other things, then we must submit to his word and put competing voices in their place. You've got a lot of competing voices. You have talk radio, you have Netflix, you have Hulu, you have Amazon, you have the networks, you have Sports Center. you have social media. Does anybody read a newspaper anymore? If you have a newspaper, you've got that. There are all these competing voices always speaking things that are antithetical to God's word. Put competing voices in their place. A king, God says, is to read every word of his law. What are we in union with Christ? What has God made us? God's made us kings. And so you are supposed to know. You're supposed to read that and say, oh wait, they put the ark on a cart? no, you're not supposed to do that. And so when we see people messing up and we see in our own lives, things are going haywire, we say, oh no, no, that's not what God has said. That's not what God has directed. There are no excuses. There are no accidents when you know what God has said and you obey it and apply yourself to it. Quiet the other voices, push them to the back and hear God's voice. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to continue to strengthen us in your word and continue to bless the learning and reading and hearing of your word among us. Father, we ask you this not just so we can uh, fill our heads with facts, but that it changes our lives. It comes out of our fingertips and out of our feet and out of our tongues and out of what we do. So Father, continue to build us up in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.